From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday for you, even though it's Thanksgiving. Father Brian Mullady is here to give you some brand spanking new content. Michael McCall spinning the dials behind the glass, producing the program. And uh, I am Jack Williams. We won't be taking your calls today, but we are, as I said, going to empty out that mailbag. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag presentation, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Or you can actually leave us a listener comment line call. Simply call our main number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time, uh, Monday through Friday. And you can leave your question for Father Milady. Father Brian, how are you? Just fine, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. And I'm guessing you will be full of turkey by the time this airs. Gee, I hope not. <laughs> I'm not a turkey person. Oh, well. It's one day a year, not even? No? Not yeah. even one day. Okay, well, there you have it. To each his own. That's um, right. So you're going to talk a little bit about um, how our belief in God plays into our civil life. Right. And I'd like to begin with something I often use on this day which is the original proclamation of Thanksgiving by George Washington in 1789. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey for his benefit, who um, for his benefits and humbly to implore his protection and favor and whereas both their joint committees requested me to um, recommend to the people of the United States a great day of prayer to be observed by acknowledging with greatest grateful hearts the uh, nature of the benefits received by affording them in appropriate um, form peaceably an opportunity to establish a form of government for their safety. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next, to be devoted by the people of the United States to the service of the great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks 
for the kind care and protection of the people of the country previous to their becoming a nation for the signal manifest mercies and the favorable interpositions of that providence which we established to the course experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed for the peaceable and national manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one lately instituted for the civil and religious liberty which with which we have been blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which he hath been pleased to confer upon us, and also that we may then unite in most humble offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of the nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in particular private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed to, to protect and guide all sovereignties and nations, especially such as have been shown kindness unto us, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant into unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows what is best, given under my hand to the city of New in the city of New York. In the third day of October, in the year of our Lord, 1789. Now, I, I don't think you could have a better expression of what we're supposed to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving Day than that. Because it's not only food or turkey or something like that. But it's for the ability to have just government the ability to carry it out in a moral fashion, the um, promotion of true liberty, but at the same time, true law, and finally, to thank God for his protection. They, they mentioned the Revolutionary War, but for our country in wars in general, 
that Washington established Thanksgiving Day. Unfortunately, today, with our woke culture, Thanksgiving has become some very strange celebration of, uh, I don't know what, Native Americans, were, who were certainly a part of it, but they weren't the only part of it. The part that is the most important is that all these peoples all came together to give glorious thanks to God for what he had given them. And in the Catholic Church, the whole idea of thanksgiving, which is to receive a gift and to give a gift in return, is basically summarized most fully in the gift of the Holy Eucharist. After all, Eucharistine means to give thanks, and it's stated in the words of institution that the last supper Jesus gave thanks and broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it. We need to thank God for the country we live in, and we need to encourage people to stop trying to trash our country or to hold it in contempt or to pretend that we are some devil worship, uh, uh, terrible uh, aberration based on an unbridled capitalism where profit is the only motive. And to realize that it's true, there are, as the uh, proclamation admits, gray areas or difficult or even evil areas that these things are aberrations. They aren't normally what our government is about. And to live what our government offers to us, our constitutionality. Uh, that's why, because of Washington's statement, the commitment to God, to the supernatural being, in some sense is absolutely necessary to the maintenance of order, law, truth, all those things that societies come together, justice, to promote and to encourage. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition on this Thanksgiving of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition, simply send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author, our own Raymond Arroyo, brings his New Orleans jazz roots and well-honed dramatic talents to a heartwarming all-new Christmas classic album, Merry and Bright. 
backed by the jazz supergroup, the NOLA Players, Marion Bright captures unexplored emotions of the season with an all-new rendition of the beloved Feliz Navidad, complete with a moving duet with Grammy winner Jose Feliciano. And soon to be a Christmas favorite, Marion Bright will forever change the way you experience these cherished songs. Raymond Arroyo's dynamic interpretations will be like hot cocoa on a warm winter night, warming your home and holiday traditions this Christmas. It's available now at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition on this Thanksgiving of uh, EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Father, got a question from James, an email, which is becoming a weekly topic for us here on Open Line Thursday. He says, how do Catholics determine if something is a mortal sin? What happens to your relationship with the Holy Spirit when you commit a mortal sin? You determine whether something is a mortal sin, and it has to have three conditions. You have to do it, it has to be contrary to the law of God in a serious way. You have to do it with full knowledge and complete intention. When you do this, what happens is that in moral evil, you make an action, and it can be internal or external, in which you enter into the world in a way contrary to the way God made the world. And as a result, you create a disorder in your soul. And in the case of mortal sin, that disorder is of such a serious nature that it precludes the existence of charity. And so you lose the presence of the Holy Spirit and charity until your next act of confession. Uh, in order for a mortal sin to be forgiven, the confession of sins is necessary. Very good answer there, Father. Thank you so much. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Thursday. But if you would like to leave us a listener comment line question for Father Milady, you can call our regular numbers, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time. Let's take a listen now to one of those listener comment line calls. Hi, this is Anthony from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I have a question for Father Milady about St. Thomas Aquinas' third way and physical materialism uh, or materialistic uh, determinism in the sense that in the third way, Thomas talks a lot about God's existence arising from possibility and necessity and how you have to have a necessary being to have the existence of the many possible beings that we see surrounding us. But what would you say to a physical determinist who says that everything is that's possible is not really possible in the sense that it's determined by uh, the laws of nature and the constraints of the universe since the Big Bang and that therefore things that seem possible or contingent aren't actually possible or contingent. They're just the result of the laws of nature and physics. Thank you, Father. Well, I think you confuse this because this proof isn't just physical, it's also metaphysical. And as I understand it, it's basically saying that if there's partial being, 
there has to be necessary being. Because how can there be something that's not fully existence if there's something that is not fully existence? And so, since there has to be a necessary being for there to be a partial being, that's being as being, or what we know to study in metaphysics as a being that exists in its own right, and that's the proof for God's existence. So I think it's a little less complicated than you're making it. Got an email from Alex, and he says, St. Irenaeus says that both saints Peter and Paul established the church. How do you know Peter was the first pope and not Paul? Well, Paul wasn't a bishop, and the pope is the bishop of Rome. And so as a result, he's also head of the College of Apostles. Paul is not the head of the College of the Apostles. He's actually the rock on which the church is built. Paul is not the rock on which the church is built. Peter represents the primacy of the keys or authority. Paul represents the preaching of the church. And so they're basically about apples and oranges. Um, Paul would not be considered to be the first pope. Nobody ever did consider him to be the first pope because his life is not a matter of jurisdiction, nor is it a matter of authority. His life is one of truth. Was he a priest? Uh, yes, I believe he was. I believe he was ordained. But the scriptures don't uh, go into that too much. But I do believe he was a priest, yes. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. This is Susan in Alexandria, Louisiana. I'm calling to talk to Father Milady and ask him about the transfiguration. Moses and Elisha were seen. How their bodies were seen, I guess. How did they know that it was Moshe and Elisha? and they had died, and they had not, uh, how did they have bodies? Was it just a vision, or an imagination, or a dream, or, please let me know the answer. Thank you. Uh, well, I didn't get part of the question. Well, she was wondering if uh, they saw Moses and Elijah with bodies at the Transfiguration. First yes. of all, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? And then how did they see their bodies if they were dead and gone? Oh, well, their body, of course, is miraculously brought back to life so that the apostles can, can view them as a part of the uh, revelation. Regarding uh, with Moses or Elijah, I would say it's a similar answer. Uh, they don't... Um, identify themselves that way, but the two cultic mediators of the Old Testament, who are in fact the ones who give witness to Jesus, are Moses, who represents the law, and Eliah, who represents the prophets. So it would make sense for them to be the two people who appear with Christ that give testimony to him. Because the whole weight of that episode 
is that they're the testimony concerning Christ being the second person of the Trinity. Even the venue gives testimony to it because normally people thought they saw God on mountains. So it's on a mountain that this occurs. And it's both the law and the prophets that are giving a testimony to the fact of Christ's death and crucifixion. And then Christ himself makes the comment about rising from the dead and he tells them not to tell anyone until he's actually risen from the dead about the vision and it says they didn't quite understand what he meant by that until he actually rose from the dead himself. Um, Karen wants to know, why do Catholics perform infant baptisms? Catholics perform infant baptism because we want the child to be saved. And it would not make sense to wait to give salvation, the gift of grace, until they were adults. Uh, I know there are people who are baptized as adults, and I think that's a good thing. But regarding uh, children who are baptized, it's to save them from original sin. Uh, again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Um, Juan wants to know, what does the term gravely illicit acts mean? Are they the same as intrinsically evil acts? Uh, yes, I would say so. And gravely illicit acts are what we would call mortal sins. In other words, they're gravely contrary to the law of God, which governs the universe, the natural law. And so a person who would disobey a law about something very grave would put their soul in, in a state in which they lost grace because it would be incompatible with the way they are as a result of what they've done. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we will not be taking your phone calls today. Arnold wants to know what the difference is between a penance and an indulgence. Oh, an indulgence is a removal of the effects of temporal punishment due to sin. So it's not... Um, restitution, although it could involve restitution. That's one of the things it's about. But penances are actual responses to sins, actual sins that you've created, and they have to do with making restitution for the sin itself. And then Joel would like to know, can a priest ever break the seal of confession? Never. Period. So there's no civil consequence that could be brought against him that would give him the ability to, uh, to do that. Right, because you got to remember, words that are said in confession are not ours to use for any purpose because they're actually said direct to Christ. 
we're just the mediator. So it isn't, doesn't belong to us to say anything about it. And if you want an excellent film on this problem, see the Alfred Hitchcock film, I Confess, hmm. with Montgomery Clift, made in the 40s. But a priest may never violate the seal because the seal are words that the penitent has said to God. So they don't belong to the priest at all, to share or not. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Not taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right, a very special mailbag edition on this Thanksgiving day of EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Father Terry writes in, when instituting the Eucharist, why does Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me, as if it was just a symbol? Well, the fact that you think it's a symbol, or that you think the words are only symbolic, in my opinion, is due to a prejudice, also to a lack of translation, because the memory there is the anamnesis, and it means not just something that happened in the past, but making that present right now. So uh, it would be insufficient in language, original language of the Bible, to hold it was just a kind of, you know, remembrance where we wrote in a book something that happened to us. Instead, it's a remembrance in the sense of making the action present to us which occurred in a physical sense in the past, now in a real sense. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Worcester, Massachusetts, the question is this, uh, for open, open mind. I go to confession after I receive communion at my pastor's, my priest, say that I can do this. I do this every Wednesday. I'm in a complex that's cut off from, I can't get to Mass and can't get to the Confession at Regular Church. Am I committing a, a, a model sin by, uh, because I have to sometimes confess model sins after I receive communion. But he, he told me that he gives me absolution at, right after I, the Mass that I receive on Wednesday. Uh, I don't know what, what to do. I'm in a quandary about it. Thank you. It doesn't seem to me like you've experienced any kind of grave sin. It seems to me like you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Now, he did say at the end there, Father, that he occasionally has to confess a mortal sin after he's just received communion. Uh, well, I know that, but there are people that think that mortal sins are nonsense, you know. I mean... I've had people tell I had one fellow who was excessively scrupulous tell me that since in the old code of canon law, priests weren't allowed to go to horse racing, 
He added, asked, he asked me if he'd committed a mortal sin by watching horse on television. So the question is, did you really commit a mortal sin? Is what I'm saying, and I doubt it, because most for most laymen today, um, mortal sin would be well, perhaps self-abuse, but then also. Um, Missing Mass on Sunday. That's their basic mortal sins. So, what you know, I couldn't tell you what the answer is without knowing what we're talking about. That's the point. Uh, but I know a lot of people think that things are mortal sins that aren't. The priest may just not want to wanted to tell that. If it truly is a mortal sin, though and the person is truly sorry but just can't get the confession, as far as my understanding of the teaching is, they have to go as soon as possible. And that possibility can be physical possibility or moral possibility. Let's say the only priest you have access to is someone you know hates you. <laughs> um, or it's someone you don't want to share your internal soul with. Uh, this is sometimes true in convents of sisters, where they only have access to one priest. Uh, well, in that case, a person may go to communion with the idea that they've made a perfect act of contrition and that they're going to go to confession as soon as it's possible to find someone that will be serious with them about their confession. So, in general, I'd say that what you'd ask me is not good, but there are cases in which I can see. That's the problem with morals. Morals is an absolute as far as what you've done personally. I mean, it may be absolute regarding the law, but how you apply the law often involves some personal interpretation. Drew writes in, what can you do when it seems like two church-approved documents are contradicting each other? <laughs> well, pick the one you like. <laughs> no. no. Uh, I don't know. Again, they're, I They're I not, are they? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, again, I can't answer a question like that. It's too general. What are we talking about? What's church documents? Are we talking about things that are infallibly defined? Are we talking about things that are just customs? Um, you know, you, you can't answer a question in universal like that. You have to know what exactly it is you're dealing with. Generally, I'd say that you have to try to resolve the contradiction uh, by finding out why, they're, uh, why they teach what they teach. But oftentimes when people do that, they find out that it was their misunderstanding of the two documents. Because remember, documents are all done, well, they're like legal documents. I remember once we had a canon lawyer. He was Belgian, and the Belgians are very funny people. I mean, they can find the feet of clay in anything. And he asked me one time, he said, Father, what do you want to prove using the Code of Canon Law? 
and I can prove it. Do you want to prove contradictory conclusions? How can you do it using the code? You just tell me what you want to prove, and I'll do it. Uh, we need to do some research sometimes on the context and what was being defined and wasn't defined. It's like um, there are people who think the solace of errors on the subject of religious liberty contradicts Lumen Gentium. One says there is no freedom of religion. The other says freedom of religion is a right. Well, are they contradicting each other? Most people would say yes. But they haven't done a deep study about it because one is talking about freedom of will from the point of view of the intellect. That's the syllabus of errors. And the other is talking about it from the point of view of the will. That's Lumen Gentium. So they're talking about apples and oranges. So you need to try to be clear about what the teaching actually is and what the context actually is and whether they really are in self-contradiction or just talking about something from a different point of view. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. This is David in Claremont, Florida. I had a question regarding to a general confession. Would a person need to confess sins prior to baptism in a general confession? So, for example, I'm a convert. My sins were forgiven at baptism. In a general confession, if there's a change of life, would I need to confess those sins as well? Thank you very much. Okay, well, I don't know much about general confessions. Because as a Jesuit deal, and I'm a Dominican, uh, generally the church teaches you not to go over your past sins. They will say, well, if you should remember a mortal sin you left unconfessed, then for the sake of the integrity of the confession, you should mention that. But your sin's already been forgiven. And um, it also says in moral manuals, that examine this sort of dilemma, but scrupulous people shouldn't be taught this. <laughs> because they'll go through everything in their lives, you know, every seeming imperfection, where they blink their eyes wrong one day or something, to try to find out what a horrible scarlet sinner they are. And uh, they're not usually that. So, Again, it's a moral matter, so that means it's not easy to make a judgment about that in globo, in general. That's why we have confessors and directors and people who talk about these things, because they need to be uh, more critical of the way in which something's expressed or what actually people are talking about. Now, that being said, um, a general confession, my understanding of it at least is, that usually in regard to your, like you were talking about your conversion, some very, very deep conversion of life is recommended to, um, my understanding again is, to encourage a person to realize the mercy of God. 
and uh, also to be sure that you confess everything. But once you do that, then you're not supposed to think about it again. And I know confessors who recommend to people they go to a general confession every three months. Well, I'm sorry, I, j I just don't agree with that. Um, it's it's uh, something that you do once or twice in a lifetime, not something you do every three months. And it can make people, again, excessively scrupulous. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Philip wants to know, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate from the Tree of Knowledge, were they punished, or was being naked always sinful? No, being naked was good. Uh, remember, John Paul II has quite a long meditation on that in Theology of the Body, because the body, before the sin, was a means by which people gave the gifts of themselves to another. And so uh, there was no extortion, there was no shame, nothing. They weren't using each other or manipulating each other. They had complete control over their bodies. But after the sin, because they lose God, then the body becomes a means of an occasion by which they can extort the gift of self from another. And that's what makes it evil. Uh, we often tend to think that it's nakedness that makes, um, well, sexual sin to be sexual sin. But it's not. As one of the fathers of the church said, the foundation of concupiscence is the desire to dominate. So it's the fact that after the sin, each tries to dominate the other. They do so using money. They do so using power. But they also do so using pleasure. And it's this which gives the body its character as shame. Because it's always good. We don't, the Catholics in no sense think that there's something evil about the body. What's evil is the soul in relation to the body is using it as a means of domination over another. Let's take a listen to uh, another one of our listener comment line calls. This is Larry from Mobile, Alabama. I had, a, I had a question about baptism. I live in a household full of Protestants. I'm almost Catholic. I discovered the Catholic faith while I was at college and the truth's in it, and my, my youngest sibling isn't baptized. And so I don't know really what to do about it because my family isn't a member like as a whole isn't a member of any church and so I'd love to see her be baptized but I don't think the clergy will baptize her unless like someone vows to like raise her in the Catholic faith and like I might be incorrect about this but so if I am please correct me but I know that you know like the belief in the original sin and when we're baptized like it takes away that stain off our souls we still have concupiscence afterwards but and I'd love to see you baptized, but I don't think the clergy would baptize. I know they teach that we should only baptize when it's in danger of death. So if you could just offer any advice, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, well, we, you should baptize someone at any time if they're open to receiving it. 
The reason children can be baptized is because they haven't put any obstacles to it. But if they should decide that they don't want to be baptized, then no matter how much you baptize them, they're not going to receive it. Uh, the sacrament. You have to have some freedom in choosing it if you've become an adult. Now, also, uh, regarding the issue of baptism, um, the whole concept of baptism is that we're incorporated into Christ, and if we haven't reached the age of reason, in other words, seven, then that demands that we still are open to it, and if we have, that demands that we choose it. So, baptism isn't automatic. It, it works like everything else in life. Uh, you have a freedom to choose or not to choose, depending on what your lights are. If you don't have the ability to choose because you're not old enough, well, then we could baptize you, but we're not for or against anybody being baptized, except in the sense that infants need to accept baptism if it's offered. But uh, baptism is such an important sacrament. It's the beginning of all the sacraments that we give it, even if it's not sought, with people who can't seek it. Um, Leah writes in, what is the difference between the host in the monstrance and the host we receive at Mass? Nothing. <laughs> it's the same Christ. Christ isn't, uh, you know, he's not sitting up there worrying about the fact that he's in one thing and not the other. That's what the whole concept of the real presence means. Wherever there's a consecrated host we find the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity as he reigns from heaven. And let's take a listen to our final listener comment line call. Yes, this is Pamela from Farmington, Missouri. I am teaching my son catechism, who is being homeschooled by his father. Father and mother are both Catholic but not practicing, and my grandson is 10 years old and has been baptized, but Father is saying he will not allow him to re receive the Eucharist until he's old enough to understand it. How do you best answer or handle this situation? Well, I, I missed something there. Uh... He can be baptized without being old enough to understand it. But when it comes to the Eucharist, at least in the Latin Church, we require some knowledge of what you're receiving in order to receive it properly. Now, that's not true in all realms of Christianity. I don't know if you know this, but the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church gives communion at baptism to the baby. But in our uh, section of the Catholic Church, 
we demand a certain amount of catechesis, and we demand that they reach a certain age, the age of reason, so that they can appreciate the gift that they're receiving. And she thinks it's the the non-practicing father is the one that won't let him receive his Oh, she said father. I didn't yeah. know if that was the man or the priest. No, it was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, you have to be... <laughs> <laughs> All I know is what I hear. Details uh, matter. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the father. Well, he's within his rights not to let his child go to communion up until he reaches majority. After that, the child, and that's like 18... After that, the child can do what he wants, because the child, parents have no more rights over him. So Julia, Julia writes in, mm. God gives some people supernatural grace that they do not deserve. I've never received supernatural grace. How is this fair? <laughs> you never been baptized? If you were baptized, you received supernatural grace, and unfortunately... It isn't up to us what's fair or not fair. When it comes to God's gifts, it's up to him. So my advice would be to be a little less judgmental and uh, maybe stop trying to look at the thing as a civil court would and look at it as a gift that we all receive from God. Um, timeless words of wisdom from EWTN founders Mother Angelica. That's what you'll find on Mother Angelica Answering the Call, Sundays at 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It features the best of Mother's advice to listeners, and it's hosted by Father Joseph Mary Wolf and Doug Keck. Check it out, Mother Angelica Answering the Call, Sundays, 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern Time, only here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Erica wants to know, did Abraham think that he was going to sacrifice Isaac? Uh, yes. Yes, he chose to follow the command of God. Uh, in fact, infant sacrifice was common in the Canaanites. But then when the angel stayed his hand, this was a sign that God was not following the Canaanite religion that we do not practice infant sacrifice. But he was willing to do it to show his obedience. And the fact that his son was Isaac, who was his only son, was especially poignant in detail. Uh, Aaron writes in, is it ever moral to prescribe contraception as a nurse practitioner? Uh, yes. If a person has to regulate a girl's period in their teenage years who is not having sex, then, contra then the contraceptive pill has a, a therapeutic result. But if the person's having sex and can conceive, then it immediately becomes contraceptive. Um, Jake wants to know, in the Catechism, it defines what constitutes a sacramental marriage. One of the stipulations says that it requires two baptized individuals. Why is this? Because it's a sacrament. It's a holy estate. The two people are full of the Holy Spirit, and they give themselves to each other, just as Paul says, as Christ gives himself to the church. 
And so they represent a kind of domestic church. So in order for them to do that, they uh, have to each be baptized. Jan would like to know, is it showing disrespect to God if you have certain gifts and abilities that you choose not to use? Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, presumably one has more than one kinds of gifts. <laughs> and uh, you can, certainly you can choose not to use some of your gifts, but use the others. And then uh, Josh wants to know, what does the church mean when she talks about the preferential option of the poor and how that would look like in a modern sense? Well, the preparation option of the poor is an attempt basically to say that we don't subscribe to a church which uh, prefers the rich, basically. And there are churches that are like that. I listen to a Trinity broadcasting sometimes that's about the Protestant fundamentalists. And I remember I heard one preacher who said, Jesus doesn't want you to be poor. He wants you to be rich. And when you're rich, you give the money. You know, your prayers are only as effective as you're giving. Giving to so, me. To me, exactly. Uh -huh. So, no, it's the idea that we don't look at a person's clothes or his demeanor. And, in fact, everybody knows that the Catholic Church is uh, much more open to the poor than other denominations. And uh, finally, Ben says, why did God allow the angels and humans to fall, yet there's no hope for salvation for the angels? Well, the angels demonstrate God's justice. And it's because of their angelic character, the, their way they live their intellect and will and their freedom is that their one choice is their only choice. So they can't be converted from that. Father, would you leave us with a thanksgiving blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be sent upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope that you enjoy uh, a great rest of your Thanksgiving day, and keep in mind uh, that to whom, or he to whom you should be most thankful to. Until we get together next time, God bless.